Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner, and I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. That's what this show is all about, combing the world to find authors and experts to talk about cats and dogs, and sometimes other creatures who share our world. I've been having these conversations for an hour every week on Long Island's only NPR station, 88.3 WLIW-FM, which is where I originated this show and have not missed a week for 14 years. There's a podcast library with all 750-plus shows at RadioPetLady.com, along with my other pet talk shows, including Cat Chat and Good Dogs, The Training Show. Feel free to write me at radiopetlady at gmail.com with questions or suggestions. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high-protein foods for cats and dogs. And the show is also brought to you by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie a feline-only veterinarian. My guests today are Julie Forbes, talking about her new puppy training video series, Puppyhood with Julie Forbes. Dr. Virginia Maxwell is a professor of forensic sciences and a trace evidence scientist in animal cruelty investigations. And Ellen Carosa, the cat LVT, is going to talk about the Chris Giffey Memorial Foundation and the work it does for tiny kittens. I have some great news for the new year. Those of you who got puppies any time during the dreaded pandemic, which seems to be an ongoing event, the pandemic, or you're thinking of getting a puppy, or even if your puppy is three years old, although may not be as totally relevant, a woman I adore in Seattle, who I got to know when I was there with the New York Dog Film Festival, is an amazing dog trainer. She had a great radio show, actually, called Dog Talk with Julie Forbes, which is how I met her. I'm like, hey, you took my name, but it was okay. I loved her too much once I heard her show to even care. Ah. It's true. It's true. She started, she stopped her dog training business a little bit to create a video series called Puppyhood with Julie Forbes. It is the most gorgeous video series. It's a training series. And you look at this series of videos once you sign up. It is the most beautiful depiction of puppies I have ever seen in my life. It's like watching the puppy bowl or puppy porn or whatever you want to call it while she's giving you this fabulous advice about how to do everything right with and for your puppy, whether it's the crate, whether it's the leash, whether it's separation anxiety, feeding, you name it. Julie, I cannot say enough good things about this series. I was entranced. I have never seen so many adorable, beautiful puppies. I would have thought this came out of Hollywood. And, you know, you had some wrangler hiring the world's most gorgeous puppies and then doing a lot of very fancy, you know, sort of invisible makeup on you too. Did you really make this at home with your wife and just sort of do it locally? Or how did you turn out something so glamorously wonderful? Uh, thank you so much. That means so much coming from you. Um, and I, so I, it's kind of a combination. So I actually filmed the part of where I'm 
or I'm talking like I'm in a private lesson with a client. Right. And giving the information, I actually filmed that during lockdown uh, of the pandemic by myself, you know, myself. And I had um, some existing clients and then some people who were reaching out to me for help with their puppies. I, uh, the, the B-roll of the puppies is a combination of some that I shot in sessions where I, you know, asked somebody, hey, let's, um, you know, existing clients or, or sort of um, connections I already had who had puppies you know, I'd love to come over, give you a private lesson and, and <laughs> film, film your puppy. And then a lot of the footage was actually shot by the puppy parents no of kidding. their own dogs in, in their own homes. And then they sent it to me to contribute to the series. And then, of course, they all got the series um, complimentary and, and love that their puppies are, you know, movie stars now. So they are cute, movie but, stars. In fact, they really yeah. are. I mean, there are some puppies and they're so cute that I who have sworn off puppies. Well, I've done it before, even before I got Wanda Weimer on her when she was a puppy. I saw these puppies like a Shibu Ina puppy. Oh, my God. A black pug puppy. Oh, my God. They're just one most adorable puppy. And then there's a pair of West Highland White Terriers. I think they are, unless there's some other exotic kind of terrier yeah. who aren't quite babies, no. but they're just darling but yeah. of course, it's really not about oh, let me show you cute puppies. You're a serious woman yeah. and a serious trainer, and you're, and I I believe that you share my desire to really inspire and educate people to feel comfortable in guiding their dog of any age, but certainly if you get them from the beginning, towards being the best possible companion citizen they can be, mm-hmm. and also be comfortable within their own puppy skin. And I'm wondering. Mm-hmm. You know, at at what point did you think, I've really got it? I've got this. I did this. It's working. Or did you not know until the whole thing was edited together? So it's interesting because um, I I worked with an editor who who I met as a client. He's a young man who I adore, and he really brought – the vision into reality mm-hmm. uh, with his with his expertise. So it was a, it was a really a teamwork between the two of us, and it was I have learned and continue to learn so much. I filmed this thing during lockdown. I, I've been you know learning how to edit audio and video myself since I left radio a few years ago, and I've you know I've learned. I've learned, and then especially with Charlie, have learned a ton. Um, but it's really was an an unfolding, and and a uh, it it turned into what it is today. I did not have the vision. I couldn't see it from when I was actually filming the footage and sitting down and talking about house training and crate training and chewing and all of the content that's in there. I didn't know that it was going to look like it does now at all. And a lot of that was Charlie and his expertise of kind of knowing what a nicely produced piece looks like. So, and then I brought my vision for sure in choosing the clips, choosing the, um, the still shots and the content because there is a many, a lot more content that didn't even go in, that didn't even make it into the series because you know it well, want hoping, to be ten hours long. Yeah, I'm hoping there would even be another series. This one, you pay for the series, and is it nine segments that you can watch one at a time, and obviously watch them as many times as you want? 
But within each one, there's sort of subcategories. So one is called leash, but then there's all kinds of things about how to get a puppy used to a leash. And then there's a thing on what how a, a dog relates to the world when leashed. Or I mean, ideas that mm-hmm. I had never really considered before. But what I love mm-hmm. also about it is that while listening to your advice and words – some of it with you talking to the camera, some of it with you being with the dog and us watching you show a little little guy how to sit his little butt on the floor. There's also some mm-hmm. hilarious kind of, I don't know if you call them cutaways, that my favorite one is when you're talking about an idea that I'd, I'd actually never encountered before. The idea that, and I, I noticed that in every shot of a crate or a dog bed or a puppy pen, there were loads of really nice chew sticks and bullies and tendons and pizzles and stuff. And I Mm. thought, gosh, that's a lot. I wonder why. And you explained it partway through. You said, you know, the puppy wants to chew all the time. So I think there should Mm -hmm. be as many things around for that puppy to chew as possible, particularly not on your flesh or on your belongings. But that way, whenever the urge strikes, the the dog can reach out and chew something. And then there's this hilarious thing where you say, you know, otherwise you ask them to give up their one toy or their one chew thing. And they're like, no, it's my only one. And then it shows this this graphic of a woman guarding her pizza. It's so hilarious. It's not a graphic. It's a photo of a woman sort of cradling a, a small individual portion pizza. Right. Which I thought was so funny, and you said you say in the in in talking to the camera, so you know it's an abundance. That's the thing that it's a great word, Julie. You have so many great words that no one I've never seen used before. If the dog has an abundance, then they're happy to share. They say it's no problem. There's much more that I could I could deal with myself. And then there's this shot, which I guess your your editor found or something. I thought, oh, I want one of those. A shot of a dozen gorgeous individual sort of Spago, specially made pizzas, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll take one of them. But it's the same. It made it was really helpful because you thought, yeah, yeah, if a dog has loads of delicious sizzling pizzas, he's happy to let yeah. you or his buddy have a slice, you know. But yeah. not if all he's got yeah. is a slice. You, you, yeah. there's a great, a great combination of talking about you. Julie being paid to do something, a buck versus 20 bucks versus 100 bucks, and what kind of a treat the dog gets. What do you mean by high reward? You know, I've had trainers mention that and talk about, oh, you need a high reward treat. But you really put it in dollar and cents mode so people could understand it. I think there's a lot of ways in which you bridge the ways that dogs perceive Mm -hmm. the world and the way that we perceive the world and put it in an equivalency. I'm sure that's something you always did in your in your lessons with people or still do when the lucky people get a lesson. Yeah. You know, you just are you're hit your I'm I love that you picked out the pizza part. That was all me. Oh and good for me. you. Like, it's you know, and Darcy and I very jokingly say that I'm food aggressive and it's um <laughs> you know, but it's like it's the it's the uh, it's it's exactly that. It's like and the, the word that I use that you said is is the bridge, and it's it's having people making things relatable, yes. and really bridging the species gap and helping people really understand and bring them into the dog's experience of mm-hmm. what is happening 
And, and that, because that is what's going to motivate their choices in the future is the sort of cause and effect. Or like you said, with the, the chew stuff, it's like, if I, yeah, I love pizza. And if I got pizza, <laughs> you know, once a month and, and what I got was two slices, you know, or one, and somebody was like, oh, can I have one of those? I would not <laughs> want to share it. You know, I wouldn't. But if I had, you know, 15 of them, like in the photo, and it's like, yep. oh, you know, it's one of those situations, like I couldn't eat all of this. It's going to go bad. Like, please right. take some home. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You were very funny. We said, yeah, take some home. Whereas, but if you only had one, you'd be, no, not sharing, not doing it. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that people come in with, and I love that you picked this out because this is just so easy. And people, like, I can't, I meet so many people with puppies, and the puppies don't have edible things to chew on. Yes. They give and them a piece of hard you, plastic. Yeah. And the dog's like, why would I want, you know, why would I want to chew on? This? Yeah. Yeah. And, and puppies have this huge urge to, to put chew and put their mouth. That is a real natural impulse that puppies have, especially puppies have to chew on stuff and to put their mouth on stuff. And it's like, okay, well that's there. And so we need to give them a constructive direction for that impulse while also teaching them to not put their mouth on things that are not theirs to touch. But what's nice is that there's a whole filmed part of that that shows it. You know, it shows the mm-hmm. puppy that took the, the child's toy, the puppy that took your shoelace, mm-hmm. and then yeah. film the whole interaction between that puppy and your shoelace. I also like the way you incorporate corrections because, mm-hmm. you know, your average person dog owner, pet parent. I never, I'm sorry. I just don't like pet parent. Never mind. It just, it seems, it seems to me to be infantilizing that the adult human, if they are adults who have a dog or a cat, I, I don't know. That's, that's a separate philosophical conversation. Anyhow, um, the idea that um, there's something that they can do differently and it can involve correcting with not yeah. the positive only. Your average human pet owner slash parent slash guardian right. is told, oh, it should be positive only, positive only. Yes. Of course you're not yeah. hitting, whipping, beating, kicking, right. yelling at a dog. Right. But the correction right. that you show, which is a really good one, is basically two fingers that are pushed against the dog's shoulder or chest to push them away yeah. from the thing you're trying to teach them to stay away from. You say the word no calmly, you're not screaming, you're not yelling, and you push them away and they come back and you push them away again and you show it, just push them away. And there was a clip at one point, and I'm sure there's others, of how dogs correct each other. The larger dog putting their entire mouth around the top of the neck of a puppy and you show how you can pick a puppy up using some of that loose flesh on the back of their neck if you have to correct them that way. It's, it's not done with emotion. You show it. No emotion, mm-hmm. no intensity. It's simply a correction that they understand. Yeah. Because how many times can we say the word no? How many dogs think their name is no? Right? Yeah. It's all they ever hear. No, no, no. Yeah. I think there's two pieces to this. And it's, it is such a huge thing. And we could, you know, talk for hours. And I look forward to having future conversations with you about this. But, but around puppies, I think that... One is that it is 
what we need is to understand that puppies need us to be the parents. Yes. So when we're talking about discipline as a function of being a parent, a healthy, functional parent who is raising a young being and teaching them how to live in this world. And part of that is boundaries. Yes. I just wrote the word down boundaries while you were saying it. That's what you teach in puppyhood with Julie Forbes. You teach how to, how to gently, kindly, and realistically, rationally create boundaries. And then when they come up against the boundary, you, you back them off. In a way that is going to land with the dog as a dog. Yes. And that's, that's the other piece that we get into trouble with is, okay, so maybe somebody understands, maybe somebody's a lot, my, pretty much everyone I meet is already there within themselves. They're like, it doesn't make sense to never say no. It doesn't make sense to not set boundaries. Uh, you know, they're already there, but they don't know what the what and how to, to then translate it to a dog. And the thing is, is that dogs are not verbal creatures. They can learn hundreds of words, but it's not how they think. That's right. So there's, so there is a physicality and an energetic aspect to communication with dogs if you want to speak dog. Yep. And that is where it, it, that's where it's kind of, for us, it sort of throws up a red flag because it's like, well, wait a minute, we're, we're raised to do what? And to resolve conflict, use your words. Yeah, right. Use, use your words. Well, that's not going to work with dogs. Correct. And timeouts don't really work either. Go sit in the naughty chair. No. They need to be corrected by you, the human, in the moment, not afterwards mm-hmm. and not as a, you know, yes. uh, and not as a punishment later. You're going to go at a timeout. Well, we've Absolutely. run out of time, Julie, but I have to tell you, I'm I'm really looking forward to having extended conversations about many aspects of the puppyhood ser- training series on my training show, Good Dogs, because I think you bring up so many great points and you illustrate them in real time so beautifully with these gorgeous puppies. So it's sort mm. of like, it's like good for the human brain because while you're taking in information and going, oh, I get it, then there's these fabulous images of these puppies being so puppy-like and adorable and just edible, squeezable, yummy. It's just, it's a delight. I mean, if you need a puppy fix, folks, this is the puppy fix. And you might learn something at the same time, which is actually Julie's intention. Congratulations on a job. Really well done. I do hope you'll get to the point where you can do a a continuing series and maybe go into adult dogs. We all need you desperately. Desperately. Uh, Thank you, Julie. Thank you. And and yes, and Puppyhood with Julie Forbes is available on uh, withjulieforbes.com is the website. I will put a a link to it with the podcast. Thank you, Julie. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk with you, Tracy. This show is supported by Earth Animal, holistic pet wellness products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food and ship it frozen in pouches directly to your home. I am delighted to be here with Virginia Maxwell. She's a professor and the assistant chair of the Henry Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Scientists at the University of New Haven, which you might think, but what does that have to do with dogs and cats? Well, a lot, 
but I can't wait to hear more about what forensic sciences are generally and then specifically around animals. Virginia, thank you for taking time from your heavy class schedule where you were teaching people, I guess, to be forensic scientists. Is that what they learn in your courses? Uh, yes, we have uh, a Bachelor of Science in Forensic Science, and we also have a graduate program in Forensic Science at the University of New Haven. Uh, we're ranked number one in the country right now, which we're extremely proud wow. of. Um, and we, uh, we provide an education for students who are interested in pursuing careers in forensic science, but we're very science heavy in our undergraduate program. And so a lot of our students go on to things like medical school. They go on and they go into doctoral programs in biology and chemistry. They go into the pharmaceuticals. So they go on and they do a whole range of things, but we're very proud. They go on and they take up some really great careers in forensic sciences well. It's really interesting because I would I would guess before certain kinds of TV shows, most people would not have really even begun to wrap their head around what a forensic scientist is. And I'd like you to make clear whether what people see on CSI and the nine iterations of CSI, is that forensic science or is that a glamorized Hollywood version of something that you're looking at more academically? It's certainly glamorized, you know. I think CSI certainly has its place. It's brought its awareness to really a very important application of science, but it is very unrealistic. And certainly before I came to the University of New Haven and I worked as a forensic scientist in a lab, it certainly made a difference because of the expectations were simply unrealistic for us. But I do think it certainly serves a purpose and it's brought awareness to the application of science in matters of the law. So because it's glamorized and, and made to look whizzy-dizzy because the camera zooms in and out of a cell or an atom or a thread or a hair or whatever it does, I'm, I'm not a watcher of it, but I've certainly caught moments of it here and there. What does, technically, what does a forensic scientist do? You went in the lab for the first time and you were a criminal justice professor, right? I mean, that's the department you're in. So what did what did being a forensic scientist mean? Was it a way to gather information to prove or disprove the guilt of somebody? Well, I'm a scientist. I'm actually in the forensic science department here. We have a College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Science, and I fall under forensic science. Um, and I'm a scientist. Um, my education, I did a bachelor's degree in chemistry, and I did a doctoral degree in chemistry. And I actually had no forensic experience whatsoever wow. um, before I was able to get this really cool job um, in forensic science. And so we're really... I. I I would hesitate to say that we're proving guilt or innocence because that's not really the role of a forensic scientist. Um, determination of guilt and innocence is done by a jury in the courtroom. Well said. So our our role is, and it's just as important, but you know, I and I'm, I say this to my students all the time. It is just as important to understand that people may be not may not be guilty. There are some defendants aren't guilty, and it's not up to us to. That's not our world to make that decision. And so, what we do is we examine evidence and we apply science to the examination. Now, this might be molecular biology and genetics, where someone is looking at DNA. 
DNA evidence. I, for example, was a trace evidence examiner, so my chemistry background was perfect for doing that. It may be a firearms examiner, it may be a fingerprint examiner, um, but we examine evidence and we, um, we might be using it to identify something using databases by saying, for me, using car paint, it's a particular make, model, and year of vehicle that um, was involved in a hit and run. Or, of course, we have our DNA database, CODIS, which is used to identify um, individuals um, from genetic material left at crime scenes, or it may be our fingerprint database. Or we also will compare samples. And so we might um, have, say, duct tape that's been used to restrain somebody. And an individual who is considered to be the suspect in a case may have a roll of duct tape in their possession. And so what my role there is to look at the duct tape um, from the suspect in the case and compare it to the duct tape that was used as the restraint and say that they're similar or dissimilar as the case may be. And so we do really two different types of things. We compare question samples that are recovered at crime scenes to known samples from a known origin, or we use databases to take you know, genetic material, to take a fingerprint, to take car paint and run it against a database to come out with possible origins of that sample. It's, it's really fascinating because I think that many of us feel, oh yeah, I know what you mean, because you read about it, you know, in a in a in a article in a magazine or the newspaper. Oh, they compared the paint and they saw that the paint from the hit and run, you know, matched whatever it may have been or some fiber or thread. But you've also and so it's really very neat to know you have to have a doctorate and as a, as a scientist to begin to even understand the sort of the nuts and bolts of it. But this has has also brought you into cases of animal abuse, which is why you're here. I mean, I'd like, I like to learn something new about something every day if I can. So I'm, I'm thrilled to meet you. But to have you on the show, how our paths crossed was my learning of your work in animal abuse cases. Can you talk about how, how that first came to you as a case or as evidence? Well, or you know, you know how I ended up, um, you know, committing my time towards um, combating animal cruelty came out from really being a lifelong lover of of animals, um, and there were a couple of kind of events throughout the course of my life that you know brought home to me um, the situation that many animals find themselves in. We can go way back to when I was a very young child, and I remember picking up a newspaper that had uh, you know been delivered to the house I grew up in um, and looking at the front page of the paper and there was these picture of these beagles who were being made, forcibly made to smoke, chain smoke cigarettes to try and explore the link between smoking and lung cancer. Um, and I remember being horrified, you know, because to that point, my world was all rainbows and unicorns yes. when it came to animals. Um, and then I also was uh, very privileged to have um, be able to grow up around farm animals through my mother's family. Um, and I look on it as a tremendous privilege to be have been able to interact with um, cows, livestock throughout my entire life. Um, but what has also always niggled at me is uh, my grandfather owned a slaughterhouse. 
um, as well as his farms. And other than one vague memory of being in that place, and I was there many times, I've literally blocked the entire place out. I cannot recall it, um, which, you know, leaves an impact with you as to what's really going on that your that your memory has blocked it out. And I ended up, you know, I w- never worked in animal cruelty and I was working in administration here for a couple of years. Um, I took time out from actually teaching to go and do administration. Um, and as I was kind of getting a little antsy that maybe I'd like to get back in the classroom and doing research, a truly horrific case took place up in Massachusetts. And this case is known as the Puppy Doe case. And just, you know, looking up on the internet will bring this case. It's just, it's, it's become very well known. And it was a case of truly horrific abuse of a helpless um, female dog. Um, she was unfortunately listed as free to a good home on Craigslist. And I would ask anybody listening to never, ever list any animal as free to a good home. Um, and she was picked up by somebody who tortured her for weeks on end until she was able to drag herself out of the house Um and away from him. And I won't go into her injuries now. They they were just horrific. Um, and this individual did actually get put in prison, which is unusual. No Yes, it's quite quite unusual. And he was um, when he was brought to trial, he was given a sentence. Uh, he was had twelve counts of felony animal cruelty, and was sentenced to eight to ten years in prison for the crimes against this dog. And that really, then, with everything solidified in my mind, I want to go away from administration. I want to get back in the classroom, and I want to make a difference when it comes to animal cruelty because I have this, you know, specialty background. Fifteen plus years of experience as a forensic scientist. And in that time working in a forensic laboratory, I didn't have a single animal cruelty case that came across my desk, not one um, in all the cases that I worked on. And so I started to say, well, I've got this background. We really need to start doing something about this. Um, And so that's really how I dedicate my time now outside of the classroom. I've been lucky. I've been actually able to um, develop undergraduate and graduate courses in forensic investigation of animal cruelty. And recently, I was also um, very happy that the university allowed me to develop um, an online graduate certificate in animal cruelty investigation. So So somebody could take that course online anywhere in the country? Anywhere in the world, somebody could do this certificate um, for its four online graduate classes and they end up with a credential in animal cruelty investigation um, that they can use in, you know, taking maybe a, a change in career to in their existing career, you know, justice and education um, in this area. Um, and so I'm really excited that, you know, really it's been nine years now, eight or nine years um, of building. Um, I have a collaboration with Professor Jessica Rubin at the University of Connecticut Law School um, in combating animal cruelty through her tremendous experience in animal law, um, mine in forensic science, um, and some wonderful organizations like Connecticut Votes for Animals who dedicate themselves to trying to pass more meaningful laws or get legislators to pass more meaningful and stringent laws to combat animal cruelty here in Connecticut. Um, An organization called 
Guardians of Rescue located on Long Island who um, have always been tremendous supporters of the work that I do. Um, and I can't say enough good things um, about this organization. And they go out and just make a, an incredible difference in, in so many different ways. And so um, I'm really excited by what the last um, few years have brought for me here. And, you know, I'm just excited to be able to take my experience in forensic science and do something to help animals because animals have really always been um, a very significant part of my life. It's, it's very it's very beautiful the way you, you frame it and show it from your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up over in England. Um, I grew up in a city called Nottingham, um, which is actually quite a rough city the, these days. Um, and uh, but my my mother's family were from the beautiful Lake District um, in the northwest of England, a county that's called Cumbria. Um, and so I was able to go. I still go there. I still spend uh, a few weeks a year in Cumbria. It's the most beautiful place on earth, in my opinion. Oh, how lovely! Um, but, and and you very know, and very said, welcoming and friendly to animals if if they're not going to the slaughterhouse, which is of course part of of modern life, is that animals do get slaughtered and the whole topic of how they're slaughtered and how they're handled before and during is an issue in terms of animal welfare. But the kind of animal cruelty that you are teaching people how to investigate and how to do it in a way that the that the charges will stick, if you will has to do with psychopathic people in society or people without a conscience or ethics or morals who are inflicting harm either in, in the guise of doing something like a dogfight or a cockfight, but also for whatever as an expression of whatever psychopathy they have themselves. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean there are there are a range of motivations, but primarily, yes, certainly there's we can look at large animal cruelty, but primarily we think of animal cruelty in terms of what we would consider companion animals, and these generally most commonly are cats and dogs, but there are you know many other types of animals that are used as companion animals that are, can be no less abused than um, a cat or a dog. But people do have many motivations for cruelty to animals, and it can be everything from simple ignorance about proper care of an animal that can result in cases of horrific neglect. But then, of course, we have the people who want to, who just find it entertaining to harm right. animals or they right. want to shock people by doing something. Um, we also have retaliation, you know, getting back at someone by hurting their animal. Right. And we see a tremendous link between animal cruelty and interpersonal violence and domestic violence where animals can be used as a way of having power and control over an individual and to intimidate them. Um, and so that's, uh, there are many motivations. There's really a whole list of different motivations as to why people abuse animals. But, you know, the one thing that we really can't ignore are some of the statistics that link animal cruelty to interpersonal violence and other criminal behavior. I mean, it goes, you know, right up to a hundred percent even if right. you look at certain types of violence and a history of animal cruelty. But, you know, 
some of the other ones are the number of homes in which we see um, violence against people and violence against animals. It's up at about 88% where you have the two things co-occurring. Um, and in fact, so strong is the link that we see a lot of cross-reporting between animal control or animal protection agencies and Department of Children and Families and other similar agencies because the link is so strong um, and people might be more willing to report abuse of an animal right. than they are willing to report that an individual is being abused. And which so is, now which is, we'll see course, a lot of cross-reporting. A, a very interesting social phenomenon. We've run out of time, Virginia, but I, I'm hoping you'll come back another time and we can talk about the dog fighting on Long Island and Connecticut that's been going on for years, cases that are ongoing now, so that you can tell us right in our own backyard what's going on in terms of animal cruelty and perhaps ways that people can get involved. I'm, I, I'm sorry that our time's run short. You're a fascinating person doing really great things with your life, and thank you for informing and inspiring the next generation of people to do really good work on behalf of animals. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I'm just happy to get some information out to people. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and the national nonprofit Canines for Warriors. I'm so glad to have Ellen Carraza back. She is known as the Cat LVT, and a licensed veterinary technician is quite different than the person who stands beside your vet when you go in for a regular checkup and just takes down notes on how fat or thin your cat has gotten recently. It's much more complex and much more a co-doctor almost. But Ellen, I've invited you back because you mentioned the Chris Giffey Memorial Foundation, which is something you started in memory of a coworker who committed suicide and you wanted to honor his memory. And you do quite amazing things for cats and kittens. Can you talk how about how you started it? And given the 12 hours you spend on your feet in the middle of complicated uh, surgeries beside these specialty doctors for cats, why you thought you should take some more time and energy to start this foundation? Sure. Well, you know, number one, thanks for having me back. It's always a, a pleasure to talk to you. And yeah, we do a lot with the Chris Griffey Memorial Feline Foundation. Um, as you know, it was named after an honor of a co-worker. And, you know, he wanted to be a caseworker, a social worker when he graduated college. So we felt that this was a project that we could do in honor of his memory because kind of keeping on the track of like helping the needy. And so what we do is we take in the extreme pediatric and neonate cases and we, our method is that rescue, rehabilitation and rehome um, to try to get these little kittens home they deserve instead of having euthanasia as the first resort. So that's basically us in a nutshell. Okay, you in a nutshell are the person that says, I'm saving this teensy tiny kitten that's in physical distress. Right. So um, we usually have a lot of people reach out to us. We make sure that the animal actually fits what the program can provide because you do have that fine line of, you know, is this animal rehabilitation worthy in the fact 
you know, what can we do to enhance this animal's life? Because yes. the last thing you want to do is put an animal through quite a bit and then wind up, you know, failing them in the end. And, you know, I'll be honest, there are some cases that we thought we were going to be successful with, and sometimes they're not successful. So you kind of have to, you know, weigh in the, you know, the good and the bad, and then also say, is it really for our program or can we educate this other veterinary team or this rescue team enough so they actually can learn how to take care of these animals too and continue it on their end so they're not just depending upon like one program all the time. So we try to educate, um, you know, the veterinary community as well, instead of just, you know, saying, well, let me just take on this extreme project. I think it really makes a big difference that everybody else can kind of learn these methods too, and not give up on these pediatric and neonate cases so easily. And they are very easily given up on because there's not really a lot of medicine out there to, to help them. Everything is very much anecdotal, uh, you know, methods of, of treatment and care because there's nothing really marketed for neonates and pediatrics currently. That's very interesting because I guess what it boils down to is who would be advocating for them if not you right. and those right. extreme kitten lovers, and we mean teeny tiny kittens, not the fun, playful, you know, two-month-olds. We mean teeny tiny, almost, ne well, neonate, newborns, but very small yeah. and very <laughs> fragile. Who, you know, who is their advocate? It's not as though they are owned by a person usually who bought them, in which case they have a monetary right. and emotional connection. Because even if you were to buy a purebred kitten, you'd buy them at a much older age. And the breeder would be the one dealing with this teeny tiny sick kitten. So it's really right. guardian angel at a very high feline level. You're just the only guardian right. angels. And I guess that's why... You say that there isn't much literature and it's anecdotal. Is it because there's – not to say that people are are venal about money, but there's been no money behind it. Who's given someone the money to, to study the, the – to save a multi-week-old kitten, right? I mean there's no money in that. Right. And, you know, and, you know, there's that also that uh, thinking that, you know, there's so many animals out there, you know, why are we yes. saving this particular one when you can put the resources to so many? That's still some of the thinking that's out there. And it's unfortunate. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, you know, can you physically take care of this animal? Are you emotionally invested? And are you financially capable of covering the cost? I mean, these are all things that you have to think about when we're getting ready to work with one of these uh, animals because it does get really expensive. I mean, some of the bills on a few of the animals that we've had have gone into like 10 plus thousand dollars on the care. And then you have to make sure that when they do get adopted, they are adopted to the right family that's going to upkeep everything that you have done. That's so, right. you know, it really is unfortunate when you have that, that, you know, there are so many kittens out there. Why is this one just matter when we can just euthanize it and move on to the next one? And, you know, the thinking is, is you know, a life is a life and medicine evolves. And we really need to learn how to evolve feline medicine because cats still kind of get like, you know, the, the you know, the dull end of the stick yep. when it comes to medicine in some ways. You know, what can we do to do better? Because the demand is there. But again, the expense can be incredible. So we utilize our program as a way of 
using these kittens as a learning tool. They are our teachers, okay? So we're not experimenting on them. Right. There are, they are a teaching tool that our sole purpose is to rehabilitate them. Um, but, you know, they're, they're also, you know, very well loved. I mean, every, every single one of them that comes through the program, um, you know, are, are our favorite. <laughs> so, oh. you know, we, we do what we do our best to make sure that everybody learns about them the same way that we do. So we can be just as successful or even have some sort of pearl of wisdom to help the next one in the future. And I guess that's true of all medicine, whether it's cancer study or, you know, in humans or in animals, if something can seem hopeless and well, wouldn't it be kinder to, to do a humane euthanasia? But really pushing right. science forward and pushing knowledge forward is always taking right. those risks, whether it's a human who agrees right. to some sort of cancer treatment or an animal who right. somebody has invested enough in. And, and often what they say about these, these kittens and cats who go through horrific medical interventions and definitely suffer pain and definitely are deprived of freedom and other things for a period of time. Haven't you found always, and I'm sure this is true with your favorites, he's such a fighter. He really wants to live. And it kind of gives me chills because it seems that there really are those individuals, whether they're human or animal, who say, please, I want to stick around. Give me a shot at this. Yeah. And then finding the per- the right foster family or the right nurse or yes. technician, whoever, to take on that project um, can be a project in itself because sure. we're looking at like long-term foster care versus like these very short-term hospital stays. And, and, you know, that's when you're working with these kind of cats, people in medicine can be quite impatient. Like they expect <laughs> something to turn around immediately. And you're like, wait a second, that's not how it works. Yep. So these are like long-term chronic projects, but at the end, when you are successful or these animals have a wonderful quality of life and they're thriving, I mean, you can't call that a failure. To me, that's a success. There well, are times that, you know, you have to call it and say, you know, we really can't save this one. And euthanasia is a humane option, but the majority of them we can do stuff for. It's about what are you willing to put into them? Right. Time, energy, money, and of course, the, the time and energy, not just to care for them later, but to find the people who will help you, you help that cat on this long healing journey. Can you give an example right. of a condition or two that your foundation has said, we'll take this on and then found vets and then adoptive families who want to be part of it? Because it's hard for people to conceptualize. Is it a breathing problem? Is it malformation, let's say, of the digestive or other other some other organ system at birth that needed correction with surgery? What, what kind of things do you deal with? A lot. And everybody will know that we had the famous Francis, who was this incredibly tiny micro kitten. He just wouldn't grow. And at the age of like four weeks old, he was the size of somebody who was like a little, little bit one, two weeks old, perhaps. And, you know, we fought with him the entire time. And this cat just simply wouldn't grow. You know, are there things wrong with him? Put in a whole bunch of diagnostics, still couldn't find stuff. Months later, you know, turns out he has um, 
a, a specific kind of a glomerular disease with his kidneys that prevented him from growing. But after being a year old, suddenly this cat decided to grow. So he was one of our fun cases that we just kind of were like, okay, we'll just take you day by day. Like, how is this kitten going to thrive? You know, meanwhile, right. you know, he was considered very unsafe at the shelter and they were considering euthanasia, but they were like, hey, let's contact Ellen. Maybe she'll take him. And then we have the incredible Petable Egbert, who everybody loves Egg, who started off life as a completely normal kitten and then started having some issues with his hind end and progressively over time became uh, paralyzed in his hind end. And it wasn't from an injury, you know, was it from a disease? And so we had to go into, you know, getting this cat imaging and all these bizarre testing and even genetic testing. And to this day, I still do not have an answer for him. I'm still waiting on his genetic testing to see whether or not this is some sort of progressive genetic disease that causes this kind of paresis. Um, but, you know, he's with his other mom, uh, Kim, and he has a wonderful life. He goes everywhere. He goes to swim practice. He goes on car <laughs> rides. You know, he goes to Starbucks. You know, and you can't say this cat who can't walk right. or anything or needs, you know, some additional care. I mean, he can pull himself. He has a fantastic life. He, yeah. it, it is so enriched because they put the effort into enriching him. And I think that's one thing that uh, those of us in veterinary medicine need to realize, and even the public, you know, when you see these cats on social media, it's like, oh, this poor cat, you should, you know, put it to sleep. Right. Oh, I can't believe you put it through that. Well, number one, you're not in that family's shoes. So you really can't judge what's going on there. And you're not that, that cat's veterinarian. So you can't have that kind of medical input because you're not there to actually see how this animal is actually doing. You're not, you know, reading their, you know, their laboratory work or, you know, reading their x-rays right. and stuff and trying to figure out what they can do. But yeah, you do come across these animals that you're like, read them on social media, you're like, gosh, you know, I, you know, why is this really happening? And then you're like, wait a minute, like, this should be so inspiring, because if this was a person right. that this was happening to, mm -hmm. they would get as much care as they possibly could. But if it's an animal, I mean, that's a different story. You know, like, it's just an animal. To, to some people, these are not just animals. And to those of us in veterinary medicine, it shouldn't be just an animal. We should never look at them that way, but as a life on how we can always enrich these cats. And they teach us so much, especially with these foundation cats. I think they've humbled us quite a bit. And you have advanced knowledge. You have, you've taken yeah. information from the anecdotal to something proven and written down with tests and, and notes and something that others can learn from. I'm thinking of two different movies that have been in the Cat Film Festival that travels the country. One last year, or was it the year before, was about this beautiful orange tabby and um, it got hit by a car and it was paralyzed from, let's call it the waist down. And the whole movie was about this man who had given this cat this great quality of life. He went out with a, a little cat wheelchair. He had to express his bladder and he shows you in the movie how he did it, that it was no big deal. And this cat loved his life and he had ramps for him to crawl, carry himself up onto a table and look out a window. And this year there's one. So when it starts to travel again in 2022, there's a wonderful film about a young woman who took in this kitten that had no way to pee. 
And so she got vets to work with her, just like you're talking about. She said they were the heroes. They found a way to put a, a catheter into the bladder, and she had to make little pajamas for it, and this and this tubing came out. This cat was the most lively, the most happy, the most delightful cat. And the video got made because she made a donation to her local shelter. And when she, what she won for that, it was some sort of a raffle, was uh, she could get a video made for her by a professional videographer. And she said, I'd like to make a video about this cat to inspire other people to realize not to give up, that there's so many animals with severe medical problems, but they're having a great life and you can have a great life with them. Well, the kind of really uh, goosebumps thing at the end that nobody really knows when they go to the film festival is this young lady had a life-threatening cancer when she was doing all this, and she passed away. And her grandmother took over the care of this cat, which was, yeah. you know, you had to express the bladder with this thing and keep it and keep it clean and and bathe the kitty, and it had to wear pajamas all the time. It's really quite amazing, Ellen, that people are out there who want this kind of medical support, who want this kind of life-saving, life-altering intervention. And I think that other cats with less severe problems that could cross your path any day of the week will get will gain from what you're learning with the most disabled. Right. And the thing is what you have to realize in medicine too, and you know, hopefully anybody who's in medicine is listening, is Listen to the people who bring these cats yes. into you. They want to do good by them. They want to find an answer. And it's up to us to either say, you know, hey, this is beyond my scope of knowledge, but look how I can help you and not jump to euthanasia simply because you don't know what's, what's going on or how to treat something. There is a ne huge network for veterinary medicine out there that with specialists, with the online forums, et cetera, somebody's out there that can probably give you the nudge on That's the direction right. you need to go mm -hmm. in or to direct you to the right person. Like, don't give up on them so fast. But when somebody's like, you know, hey, I'm really invested on helping this animal, what can we do? Then you should be like, great, let's see what we can do instead of being so negative about it. I mean, I can't tell you that all of the emails and calls and stuff I get about how people are so frustrated from us in because sometimes we don't have an answer or they're not being given any direction. And I think, I think as a whole, we can do better always. We can always do better by our patients. I think it's an amount of humbling ourselves and, you know, dropping our egos a bit and saying, you know, Yo, hey, this is totally out of my scope. Let's get you to a specialist. Let's see what they say, too. Well, I and think they go from there. I, I think, I you, think you, there's so much I, we can do. Yeah, there is. And we've run out of time. But what you're doing and what you've created in the Chris Giffey Memorial Foundation is absolutely fantastic. I know many, many cat lovers have found you already. But if others need direction, not necessarily your direct intervention, but support, help, being pointed in the right direction. I think what you're doing is terrific. Thank you so much, Ellen Carraza, the Cat LVT. You do so many great things for cats, and I'm really glad you could take the time to explain it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.